One of the thrills that comes with the prospect or perhaps in dating <laughs> is the question of, I wonder why this person likes me. <laughs> it's, it's true, is it not? I mean, you can say a lot of things about like, man, he's so good looking. Oh, she's so pretty or beautiful. Or if you're like super Christian, like, oh, man, like, have you seen how she prays? How he worships? I think that's one, by the way, side comment, okay? I think that's one of the craziest things that people judge another person's character by, right? It's just, again, I mean, how you worship is important, right? But, but you can only gather so much from the person who lifts their hands above waist, right? Like, this is like, if this is kind of like Bible-believing, you know, non-charismatic, so to speak, worship, right? You just, you know, when people get really passionate in the Bible Belt sometimes and it's not a Holy Spirit sort of church, they, they do one of these, right? They're holding their fist and they'll just release it, right? down here but man some people right they show up to church and they're like lord come on come on tell me who's my spouse who's my mate and the first person that they see above shoulder right "Uh uh-huh uh-huh that's him that's it (laughs) but in all seriousness right when we're dating or when we're getting into a relationship that's one of the questions that you don't ask in the beginning right What, what do you like about me Or maybe you do. Maybe you're a straight shooter and you just go for it from the start. Like, I got to know why we're committing right now, okay? Like, is it based on my bank account or is it on something I can offer, my job? Well, I got to know, right? I don't know, right? But most people don't get to that question until a little bit further in, right? What do you like about me? Oh, and it's so daunting when you get to those questions because every person in their right minds has a reason as to why they believe the person that they're pursuing likes them, right? I mean, this isn't just in dating relationships. This is in normal relationships, too. We all have an idea as to why we think we are, quote-unquote, attractive to people, right? Strengths. What are your strengths, right? That's another way, another more abstract way to ask that question, right? But trust me, you won't get better feedback from your potential spouse, you know, your partner, or a dating person, right? Like, what is it that you like about me? But it's daunting, Because in that moment, you have to look into the face of what that other person values you for. It's an incredibly scary and daunting question to have to come to terms with. I think a lot of times while we get in trouble in terms of our perspective with God is that we mistake why God likes us, why God loves us why God commits to us. Now, in an objective sense, if you call yourself a believer, a son or a daughter of God, there's an objective truth. By virtue of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins and mine, and by virtue of his resurrection, thereby defeating sin and death, we are objectively bound to God's love because we are now robed in Christ's righteousness. There's nothing you can say, do, or commit that would make God turn his face away and say, I don't love you anymore. And yet, though we are, uh, we are objectively bound to God's love by the finished work of Jesus Christ, there's another sense in which God is attracted to his people based on something that takes place in our hearts, in our everyday. I'm not saying that you can do this as a, ma- as a way to add to your salvation or to take away from it, but what I'm saying is this heart characteristic dynamically changes the way that we relate with God on a day-to-day basis. 
What is it that makes us the incense, so to speak, of our lives, the sacrificial burning that comes from our beings. What is it about that? What heart character, what characteristic, what quality of us is it that makes God pleased in another sense? Again, I don't want to get this mixed up. God is always objectively pleased with his people because he doesn't just see us when he sees us. He sees his son. And yet, even in the midst of that experience, there's another sense in which we are going after the pleasure of God with our lives. Today, I want us to tackle that. What is the offering of our hearts, the quality of our lives, that continues to make us, in a sense, attractive before our Father, our Daddy in heaven? And to do that, we're going to be looking at another parable. How many parables are we going to look at? Well, I don't know. We just are going through Luke, okay? Somehow it just became that, right? It was like, okay, we're going to do a passage here, a passage here. And I don't know, I didn't intend on this being a series. I'm still not sure that I'm going to call it a series. But we're going through Luke. We're still in Luke chapter 18. We're continuing after the story, the parable of the persistent widow. And we now land in a parable detailing the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take this Pharisee, and he's going to make light, not make light less, but shed light, I should say, on a particular heart characteristic that doesn't appeal to him. It's a characteristic of self-righteousness and pride. And as we look at these two characters that Jesus is going to give to us in the form of a parable, we're going to find out what exactly it is that God is after in each and every one of our hearts. So if you look back down at your Bibles, I trust you have it open already. We're going to look back down at Luke chapter 18, verse 9, to see what Jesus is after. This is what the word of the Lord, excuse me, says. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. He's going to highlight the Pharisee first. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, we've got to stop right there. Again, I have said this just about every week that I've given a sermon. Sometimes we read the Bible and we forget that we're reading we're reading. We read the Bible sometimes like it's magic, right? Like the words are going to just start fluttering off the page and somehow do magical dance and speak something crazy to you, okay? But here's the amazing thing about the Word of God. The Word of God is completely inspired, I believe also inerrant, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's given authority to different men throughout the ages to communicate to us exactly what's on God's heart and mind. But sometimes we forget that God has done so through the means of divine literature. And that means when we're reading the Word of God, yes, we treat it as though it is sacred because it is, but at the same time, we have to employ commonsensical thinking when it comes to reading God's Word. Now, it should strike you today as you're reading verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It should make you stop and think something's up with that prayer. When's the last time you saw someone go up for public prayer, right? Tom, if he came up, right? Tom would never do this, right? right? Get this man, such a, such a handsome man, right? 
professional bicycler, right? That's not even the word, right? <laughs> Photographer, videographer, editor, wow. Right, but can you imagine if Tom came up one day, he goes, let us pray. Lord, I thank you that I am Tom. <laughs> God, I thank you for me. Thank you that you have not made me like any of the other heathens in this room. Right, nobody, guys, no one in their right minds would ever dare pray a prayer like that. So we can't skip over this. This is very revealing of this Pharisee's heart. He's demarcating, he's creating the boundaries of his holiness, not based on, at first, anything objectively within his own life. But he's demarcating his sense of holiness based on the lives of those around him. He's saying, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Thank you, Lord. You know, it's, <laughs> when we pray, typically, right, if you follow the, have you guys ever learned ACTS, Acts way of praying? Right, you always begin with adoration, right? You learned this in VBS. I always talk about VBS. I, I guess VBS has had a profound impact on my life, okay? Yeah. Right. I remember, I was like, I don't know how to pray. They go, start by adoration, right? Oh, God, thank you. Thank you just for who you are. All of the great things that you do on earth, right? And then you confess, right? I remember as a kid, right? Like, confess everything wrong that you did this week. God, I'm so sorry. I wanted to punch that guy in the face, right? Like, you know, every thought, everything, right? Kids are so good at being so vulnerable and honest about everything that's going on. And so you would detail your prayer through ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and finally supplication, right? But this guy violates even ACTS. He violates Acts. He just goes straight to me. God, thank you that I'm, your, I'm on your team. Right? You know who talks like this? Professional athletes. It's like, hey, how do you feel about, how do you feel about your game today? Right? I, I watch some basketball, right? And you, sometimes you, you watch like the, you know, the juicy stuff usually doesn't come out in like the, the conference meeting right after the game. You got to like go on YouTube or you got to wait for their, like, press conference. That's when all the juicy stuff comes out, right? Because they had some time to process their anger about how the game didn't go the way that they wanted. And, like, somewhere along the lines, right, sometimes you'll have athletes who are, you know, very, very confident in themselves. And they'll say something like, yeah, coach didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> he should be thankful that I'm on his team. How could, how dare he let that other guy take the shot when I get paid the most, when I'm the shot taker? When I'm the best that's on this team, they should all be thankful that I'm there. This Pharisee is praying more like a modern-day professional athlete than as someone who ought to just go in front of God thankful. Thankful, happy, and joyous that he is where he is. Now, I think Jesus is very strategic in the way that he's bringing this up in the parable. Because you and I might be thinking to ourselves in this moment, oh my gosh, this Pharisee, so bad. Who does that? Who actually lives like this Pharisee? And the truth is, there's a little bit of that in every single one of us. How easy is it when we have moments where we're down and out? Maybe you're like you're not doing well spiritually or something's going on. And you tell yourself, oh, man, but Lord, thank you. Thank you that I'm not in that guy's shoes. <laughs> Oh, praise God that I'm not like that bad. 
Like, I got my, my holy sins. Oof, but those full-blown sins, oof, man. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that I am where I am. It's easy to do that. It's easy to make our sense of worth come from what others aren't doing right. But there's an inherent problem with this situation. Because when we begin to get our sense of holiness, our sense of worth, to how others are doing, we're saying that God base, God's grading is based on a curve. Like, I'm, you guys know what a curve is, right? It's curve is like saving grace. If you're, anyone an engineer in this room? You're an engineering major? JM, come on. God bless you, sir. Man, my roommate was an engineer. I was like, how'd you do on your test today? He's like, great. 30%. Got a B. And I was like, I want to be an engineer, <laughs> right? I mean, what, what, what major could you go into where a 30% is above passing, right? Well, we import that model and we assume that's how God looks at it. Oh, if I live surrounded by a bunch of people who aren't quote-unquote holy or they're not doing well, man, I'm doing pretty well for myself. If, if they got 500 sins and I could only count up to 250, dude, you're acing the test then, right? But there's an issue with that way of thinking. And it's not just individual. See, we tend to think, oh, comparative holiness, oh, that's just an individual problem. Okay, I got to fix it for myself. But actually, it's a systemic problem. If or when communities of faith begin to start demarcating their sense of holiness based on what they aren't doing compared to the people around them, you've created a false system. You've, in fact, you've probably created an oppressive system where people are only going to then try to figure out their sense of worth based on whoever the accepted person is in that place. Why it's a systemic issue is that it makes our sense of righteousness require others to remain in their lack. That's what makes it hard. That's what makes it difficult. When you start comparing, right? That's why. That's why there was, there was at one call, you know, I used to do college ministry. So, you know, like we used to do skits. And I would encourage the groups like, hey, like, I know, I know, the easiest way to represent sin in a retreat, right, you just, you do like one of four things, right? You have the guy show up and they're like, oh, smoking, oh, drinking, oh, they got girls around them, or they're, they're fluttering money, right? Now, sure, those things are sinful in the sense that they're idolatrous, it's replacing God, but the reason why I had to speak to some of these groups and say, hey, you might want to think of some other creative ways to, to explore sin is because... Those are just the things that we as a culture have said oh, are really bad. So that the next time you're in public and you see someone drinking, you go, oh, oh my gosh, sinner. Got to go tell Pastor Billy. Pastor Billy, did you see that? My goodness, they were at public places and spaces and they dared had a beer in their hands. My goodness, Pastor Billy, go do something about that. 
Oh my gosh, Pastor Billy. I saw that brother on campus and they were lighting up a cigarette. You know, there was a retreat even, right? <laughs> Students came to, Pastor Billy, those other friends of mine brought their cigarettes and they're smoking right now in the back. So I asked them, so what'd you do about it? Oh, came and told you. Thanks. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> well, there was another case where I was visiting a campus and I happened to see one of our students, right? And he's part of like a, you know, there, no, there's a club on campus more known to be, I don't know, how do you say it? flamboyant about their partying tendencies and so forth. And I just, I just happened to see this brother, right? And of all days, it was like our, our, um, we had like a community group uh, on that campus that was meeting, and we were going out to evangelize, right? But evangelism night was also their club meeting night, right? And so I see this brother, and I was like, hey, dude, it's so good seeing you. And he had a cigarette in his hands, really. And I mean, I saw him from far away. It's not like I didn't know he was smoking. But the first thing he does is he goes, Pastor Billy, I walked straight up to him, and I looked into his eyes, and I said, you think I'm stupid? I was like, put it back out. Yeah. And I was like, give me a hug. Confuse the heck out of him. (laughs) What is this? (laughs) He should be telling me right now to quit smoking, get rid of that cigarette. He's probably going to shame me in front of my entire club. All I did was give him a hug. I said, I miss you, dude. Hope to see you soon at worship. I said, I'll see you later. People are like, who is he? Oh, this is my pastor. (laughs) See, the issue with comparative righteousness is that when you just start marking only some sins as communally despicable and such, but you don't go into everything else, What did Jesus say about jealousy and coveting? Man, that one made it to the Ten Commandments. What about the workaholic who doesn't take Sabbath? Our culture venerates people who don't rest. Whoa, you're so legit. Oh my gosh, like you don't get any sleep. Dude, I want to be just like you. Miserable? (laughs) Oh, I want to, I want to like, I want to go all out and just, just like work 500-hour weeks. There's not, even, there's not even 500 hours in a week, right? We then stop making our sense of worth based on who and what God said. And we just make it according to what culture says is right and wrong. It's tricky. But that's what makes this What this Pharisee is doing, sometimes at moments, what our hearts flutter towards, so difficult, is we begin to not only ostracize people, but we keep them there. We have to keep them there, because if they were to rise up out of their situation, as God sees fit, then we become nothing. This is why religious people don't want other people to succeed with God. Because then they have nothing to find value or worth in. And according to Luke, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, Luke is, check this out, 
Luke is the only New Testament book that's written by a Gentile. Luke Acts, right? Part one and part two. Luke is a Gentile who's trying to shed light on issues that perhaps Jews might have just missed because they're so inculcated in their own ethnic group, in their ethnic systems. Luke was trying to shed light on some of the things, the injustices that he could see from a Gentile perspective. And by extension, it wasn't just Luke, but this was God. And this would be important. This would be necessary because if the gospel was going to go beyond the Jewish system, beyond the Jewish people into the Gentile nations, well then, they got to start doing their homework. They have to start understanding what it's like to see life on the other side. Church, a lot of times, we forget to see the spiritual life from the perspective of someone who's not in. Sometimes we forget ourselves. What was it like before I joined the community of faith? What was it like when I was the outsider looking in? When I felt scared to walk into church because I got terrified that someone might find out who I really am and hate me, judge me, kick me to the curb for those things. Luke, Jesus is saying, we've got to change that. We're changing that way of thinking. The gospel changes that way of thinking. I, says Jesus, am changing the paradigm altogether. But the Pharisee doesn't end there. Of course, he makes his righteousness based on what others aren't doing. But if you're really, quote-unquote, righteous person, well, you've got to show for who you are, right? Look at what verse 12 says. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Can we all just give a round of applause to this Pharisee? <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee lists then all the great things that he does with his wonderful life. And yet, here's the irony. The Pharisee, the religious leaders, from the beginning, when you look all the way back to Genesis 12, the call of Israel, in short, was that they would be blessed so that they could be a blessing to their neighbors, to those beyond the walls of their own system. But see what this Pharisee is doing? <laughs> look at me, God. You should be thankful that I'm better than all these other people. And look what I do. Check it out. Not for the well-being of any of my neighbors, but just for me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Why this statement in and of itself is damning against the Pharisee is that through his version of holiness and personal piety, he's actually answering the question, what have you done to be a blessing unto your neighbors with the privileges that you have? His answer, absolutely nothing. I use my holiness as gain for my own status, which was in fact the problem that the Pharisees had experienced in their day. They created a system that no one could scale, no one could climb, no one could break through. If you wanted to be like super holy, you gotta like, you can't have a hint of anything. You essentially have to be born into a pharisaical or a religious line to even try to establish yourself. No one could break through. 
No one could get in according to these people's standards. Why? Because none of their standards were for the good of others. What does Jesus, through the Spirit, say in Isaiah? What's true fasting? Care for the widow. Care for those in need. You go out to the poor. Now, I'm not talking about just social justice for the sake of social justice. But what God speaks through that text in Isaiah is that the calling of God's people has always been that your holiness needs to make an impact in the places that you are. You have to have a desire for the neighbor. Yet, this Pharisee goes in front of God, prays his prayer, and says, it's all for me. Which begs the question, why does this Pharisee even pray? You got to think about that. Why do religious people pray? Why do Pharisee-like people pray? Why do people who are just after holiness as a self-inflating tool go to pray in front of God? Answer. They just want an endorsement. They're looking for God to come and say, boy." Oh, he's my chosen one. Ooh, look at him. He fasts all the time. Look how, look how scary he looks after he fasts. You ever meet people like that? Oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm fasting. Oh. It's not the true fast. Yeah, I'm not saying, okay, sometimes some, some of us take this out of hand, right, and we go, right, we really take what Jesus said, right, if you're fasting, don't tell anyone, right, and you go, oh, what are you doing? Nothing? Why can't you eat? Oh, I don't know. Right. right, don't be weird, okay? You just have to tell, oh, man, you know, I'm just, I'm just fasting. That's it. People go, oh, I get it. Cool. Right? <laughs> but sometimes we really try to not let other people know, Right? You know, when you start fasting, your breath stinks and stuff like, why are you chewing 10, why are you chewing 10 sticks of gum? I don't know. <laughs> Can't talk straight. I just don't want my breath to stink, right? right? Don't be weird about it, okay? But, but the point, again, is that, that when people really fast and when people really give, in the true spirit of joy, in the true spirit of blessing, it provides some measure of divine happiness. And it's not even for the sake of self. I think that's why God is so poignant to say in Isaiah that this is the true fast. Fasting is never just for your own gain. In fact, could I even dare say that our faith is never just about us? Jesus said to himself, here are the two great commandments. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Your faith is for the glory of God. But two, Love your neighbor as yourself. Our faith is also for our neighbors. This Pharisee just wants an endorsement. God said I'm legit. Oh, I follow that guy, so I'm good. Oh, I'm part of that church. I'm part of that movement. Man, I'm safe. That's what all the Pharisees said. I'm part of the religious order. I am safe. Jesus said, none of you guys are safe. 
Here's the other part about this endorsing thing. When people walk in front of God desiring a stamp of approval for their self-righteousness, they're going in front of God and saying, Lord, there's nothing else that you could give me besides a thumbs up. And that's all I need from you. I don't need anything else. Just right on the, the front cover of my book of life, Billy, he is an awesome child of mine. I have entrusted everything that I love to do and plan to do in this kingdom through him and him alone. So everyone listen to him. Hashtag from God. Right? There's only one person God has said that about. It's the son, Jesus Christ. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So every person, every shepherd, every pastor, every leader, our jobs are not to make you look at us. We're just vessels. I mean, let's be honest. I don't like saying that because in the deep crevices of my heart, I want to be hero, right? Oh, oh, Pastor Billy. Oh, Billy. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's not about me. But that's the reality. Paul said so in Corinthians. We're just jars. We're cracked jars. <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough passage, right? I wish Paul would say, we are beautiful. You are perfect just the way you are, adorned with the righteousness and all the shiny jewels that God has to provide. No, he says we're just jars of clay. You know clay jars stink. There's nothing good about them. Besides that, they break easily. That's not a good thing. Paul says that's exactly the vessel that God needs so that his glory can come out through the cracks of who we are. That's the point. We're just people to be seen through, not ended in. So you have the Pharisee, self-righteous, just seeking an endorsement from God. He just needs God's approval. Verse 13. But... The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in those seven words, everything God needs to see is there. The tax collector does the only thing that he feels right to do. He stands far off. He doesn't even have the gall to look up into heaven. That's crazy. We're not talking about like looking at God. He doesn't even want to look in the trajectory of God because he recognizes the reality of who he is. This tax collector, beating his breast, looking down into the ground, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If I translate that, this is what he's essentially saying. God, I've created this mess called my life. I've created these situations 
that surround me. But out of your goodness, could you give me what I don't deserve? It's mercy. Mercy. So beautiful. So courageous. So bold. To walk in front of someone who has sovereign rule and ownership of your life to say and ask, could you give me what I shouldn't even be asking for? Could you give me what I don't deserve? See, because asking for mercy is quite different from asking for more good stuff. It's quite different from asking for an endorsement. Because to ask for things only, like endorsements from God, only add to the goodness of self. But to ask from God, mercy doesn't chain me to myself, but it makes me dependent on Him. And it's only when we ask for mercy that we continue to find ourselves relying more on God. And this is why Jesus presents this parable, the contrast between the pride, self-righteous heart. And the heart is humble, asking for mercy. So here's the irony of the tax collector. He has done nothing. He has done nothing to make God appreciate him more. And in fact, he has nothing to offer. Nothing besides his faults, his mess, and his sins. And yet, he gets everything that the Pharisee will never get from God. Why? Why? This now gets to the crux of the question I asked about the heart that God is after, about the sort of attitude, the quality that Jesus is seeking. And it's simply this. Jesus is seeking after a humility that needs God. A humility that needs God. Verse 14 ends by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility that needs God. Because that's what humility is. Humility is simply a person quietly, yet boldly acknowledging that they have a need outside of themselves. They can't provide it for themselves. They can't make it right based on what they do, but it needs to be found from an external source. Of course, your source and your direction and your destination of humility matters. In this case, that's why I say a humility that needs God. Now, I need to qualify this, okay? Because a lot of times, if you've grown up in an honor-shame culture, you think humility, all right? Or for some of us, Korean, right? Kyomsun. Right? Maybe you've grown up around people who say, y'all need to be humble, right? But sometimes humility is treated like this. You got to say, I suck. I'm worthless. God, I'm nothing. I'm terrible. I am the absolute worst God. You shouldn't even bat an eye at me. Now again, that's not entirely false. 
the way God finds us in our pre-saved state, we're not all that pleasing. But sometimes we take this idea of humility so far to a place that God hasn't even directed us to go to where we get to the point of condemning ourselves. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does death do? It makes you just look at yourself and say, you are the absolute worst. You have no reason to exist. You should just go die. That's what self-condemnation essentially is. It is a self-created death sentence. By cutting down all the dignity that God has given to you by virtue of being made in His image. See, sometimes we think self-condemnation is so noble, so great. Right? I mean, if you go to a small group where you're talking to a friend, well, how have you been doing these? Oh, I've been QTing, and I realize I am wretched beyond repair. I am unsavable. I am the worst, praise the Lord. <laughs> that's, wow, that's, that's, wow, that's depressing, Right? There's no, there's no resolution. There's no wrap-up from that, right? There's no Jesus, you know. Yeah, I'm just bad. So bad. I'll tell you why. Self-condemnation or that version of humility gone to an extreme looks a lot like the Pharisee. Because self-condemnation still at the end of the day is about yourself. Self-condemnation is still about yourself. You are essentially saying, I'm so bad that the cross of Jesus is still not enough. That is just as damning as a person who fails to look at the cross at all and says, I don't need it. In both cases, both people are saying what? I just need me to be better. The tax collector is the great equalizer. Not what I can do, but you what you've done. And all I can say is, I just need you. I just need you. Now, you might think that that's the end. Parable closed. End of story. But Jesus continues to make his point as you might think, right, in this literary structure, the scene shifts. And you might think, oh, it's just a different passage. But it's a passage then that, that follows that demonstrates the sort of humility that Jesus is asking for. Look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Who are the people in this passage that look a lot more like the Pharisees? It's the disciples. Let me imagine the scene. Jesus, please pray for my kid. Right? I understand this now, right? Because like if, if I go somewhere, right, there's a guest speaker, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm like, you know, guest speaker, right? Can you pray for my son? <laughs> right? Pray that, you know, he'll have, you know, a great future, you know, that, you know, he'll be whatever, like, you know, 
Not whatever. I mean, I love my son. I want him to have a great future. All these things, right? It's as though that the disciples are kind of like the, you know, they're kind of like the, the bouncers at the front of Jesus' line. Oh, sorry, sorry, man. Sorry, sir. Sorry, sir. Only, only good people allowed, right? <laughs> Non-crying infants only, please, right? And Jesus goes, hold up. That's not what I had in mind. Bring them. Bring the infants. Bring the children. Bring the little ones. The ones that you might think have nothing to offer besides their throat poo and their need for food. Right? They have more to offer and teach than that. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. What, are, what is Jesus pointing out? You know, kids aren't always great. Like I said, I wasn't the best VBS teacher, right? Like these kids, sometimes they're so evil, right? They plot and they scheme like amazingly well, right? To get back at other kids and stuff like that. But you know what? There is one quality about kids that sometimes we lose as adults. And it's their ability to appreciate grandness. Something that's bigger than them. They recognize in different places that they are the small ones. Yeah. It doesn't take much for them. Sometimes you just wrestle kids, right? Right? Boys need that, right? Very physical, right? They need some like activity. And they're like, I'm gonna beat you. Like, yeah, right, right. You just gotta like, I don't know if you guys used to watch like WWE, right? Like wrestling and stuff. I used to watch wrestling, right? I wasn't always on the giving end, right? A youth group, I was like, I was a dude that all the older guys would practice their wrestling moves on, right? But boy. It didn't take long before, you know, they put me in some kind of submission, right? And I'm going, I get it. You're bigger than me, right? Kids are so good at that. But we lose that as adults because we think we could take care of life's problems on our own. We think that we can overcome every situation with our intellect, with our goodness, or the different things that we have. Good skills, but sometimes too good for our own good. Kids understand their limits. Because the world is so big. People are so big when they are not. That's humility. Humility doesn't always have to look like the last day of retreat. It can. It can. Don't get me wrong. It can. It often does. But even St. Augustine, great, great theologian, his conversion experience didn't come from a true yaw moment. He was sitting under a tree, and he humbly recognized his need for a Savior. And he got up, and his whole life changed. Sometimes humility need not even speak a word. But it needs to need. Humility needs. Just like a child needs a parent needs love. We too must learn the ways of receiving the kingdom like a child. Humbly. Faithfully. Resoundingly. Now as we come to a close, I want to submit one thing to you. What is a way that we know for certain that we are growing in humility? Don't be mistaken. Just because you're good at 
honor, shame, expressions of humility, right? Oh, you're so good. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm no good at that. I'm no good at anything. Right? Next time someone says, wow, you're so good at that. What if you just said, thank you? <laughs> right? People can walk around, that person's not humble. <laughs> they don't understand. They don't get it, right? They need to they go lower, right? No, no, no. Jesus never says that I need to submit myself, ourselves in front of just people alone. Yes, leaders, true. Hebrews commands that. But ultimately, my submission and my need goes before my maker, God. How is that best demonstrated? I think the parable expresses it. It's not when you go back home and you go, now today, I'm going to pray for the next two hours. I'm going to have the dopest QT that the world has ever seen. Pour over scripture. I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry into scripture, right? So hopefully my tears will bleed the ink so that when someday reads it, someone, someone will find it. Oh my gosh, that dude was really holy. That sister was really holy, right? No, 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 no. How's your humility then best expressed? The problem with the Pharisee was not that he was a Pharisee. It's what he did with his Pharisaism. It's what he did with his authority, his Christianity. He failed to love his neighbor. You know what humble people do? They wish for the success and they build themselves into the stories of people's success around them. They don't make life about themselves. They make life about continuing the legacy of Jesus to make the living of their neighbors better. Save people. Get involved in the salvation of other people. Justify people. Help get into the process of the justification of other people. I believe that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying today. You want to pursue humility? Yes, you must read. Yes, you must partake in community. Yes, you must pray. Yes, you must do these things that set you apart for my work. But at the end, you're set apart not to be apart. What does Jesus say in John 17? God, I pray that they would be out of the world. No, 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 no. I pray that they would be in the world, but not of it. How are your campuses doing? How's your workplace? Are people glad when you show up? Or do they all run out of the break room? <laughs> I'm not saying that we have to be appealing to the world but sometimes I wonder what made Jesus so appealing to the unreachable of his day. Why did prostitutes like him? Why did tax collectors go after him? I think they were drawn that his holiness wasn't kept to himself, but that he always had a mind to share himself with others. Let's pray.